Welcome to Dream Radically Podcast, a series brought to you by Foundation for Liberating Minds. Dream Radically is the need for those passionate about justice and equity to imagine the world they want to see, to envision a place that provides the societal conditions necessary for true justice to be the norm for all people. Join us as we embark on the journey of dreaming radically with community leaders, artists, activists, educators, and more. My name is Miles Francisco, and I'll be your host on this path of imagining. Let's dream. Today, I am joined by Tevin McDaniel and Dr. Reverend Eric Gill. I've known these two people for years, and both of them have seen my growth and maturation in the work that I do. Tevin as my peer and Gill as a key mentor of mine throughout the years. This conversation is a deeply personal one for me because at the heart of my work is the need for us, for Black people, to show up for all of us, for all Black people. For me, as a cisgender man, to uplift and make space for Black women, Black queer people, Black trans and gender nonconforming people. This is a radical dream of mine, a Black radical unity, as Angela Davis articulates it, where we show up with love and care rather than harm and disconnection. That means that Black men in the movement must excavate patriarchy misogynoir from our lives. That means saying their names, Dominique Remy Fells, Raya Milton, and Torian. So let's get into this conversation and let's do this work to be accountable to the deconstruction of the internalized systems of oppression within us. Born and raised in Midwest City, Oklahoma, to Eddie and Wanda Gill, Reverend Eric Gill received a bachelor degree in business management from the University of Central Oklahoma. He has obtained two master's degrees, a master's degree in the science of management from Southern Nazarene University, and Eric graduated with honors from the Samuel Proctor School of Theology at Virginia Union University with a master's of divinity degree, where he also certified in church administration. On May 13, 2017, Eric received his Doctor of Ministry degree from the Samuel Proctor School of Theology at Virginia Union University. His research focused on awakening Black consciousness and Black youth. So welcome, Gil, to the podcast. Appreciate you hopping on here. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing good. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We are also joined today by Mr. Tevin McDaniel who is the Director of Education for the Foundation for Liberating Minds. If you have been listening to the podcast for a bit, you heard Tevin on the first episode, The Dream, uh, where he joined myself and Mr. Alham Carter uh, to talk a bit about the, the foundations of the Foundation for Liberating Minds. So what's up, Tevin? How you doing today, sir? I'm good, man. How are you? You know, I, I can't complain. Living life. So we're just going to hop into this conversation. I, I I invited both of you on this podcast because, and this is sort of the third podcast episode that we'll have that's um, both sort of in response to um, the recent happenings within society in regard to the public murder of George Floyd. Um, so we've talked about abolition on this podcast, PIC abolition. We've talked about restorative justice or alternatives and different theories of change to talk about harm and violence to address it in our society. Now I want to talk about the role that Black men play in movements for liberation and sort of a push towards Black men better supporting and showing up for the entire community, particularly to Black women, Black queer and trans folks. And I invited Gil, because Gil has long been, you know, a mentor of mine, for, for years since, you know, my freshman year of high school. And, and Tevin is obviously a, a comrade, an accomplice, a friend of mine who is also an accountability partner for me and vice versa. So we're always there for one another to, to try to do better and be our best selves in this work for, for justice and equity. So I want to start this conversation with an excerpt from one of Audre Lorde's articles titled Sexism, an American Disease in Blackface. And I always you know, cite this article as the beginning of my awakening or my consciousness around patriarchy and my privileges by way of this random biological organ that I have or my manhood. 
Um, and this article really messed me up, I like to say, in the best way possible. Um, so I want to read this excerpt and then we can just hop into this conversation. So Audre Lord says that in this country, Black women traditionally have had compassion for everybody else except ourselves. We have cared for whites because we had to pay for survival. We have cared for our children and our fathers and our brothers and our lovers. History and popular culture, as well as our personal lives, are full of tales of Black women who had compassion for misguided Black men. Our scarred, broken, battered, and dead daughters and sisters are a mute testament to that reality. We need to learn to have care and compassion for ourselves also. So I guess my first question for you all is sort of the first point of conversation that I want to have for you all is the ways that patriarchy often turns into violence against women, and particularly this conversation around Black men and their leadership in the movement uh, for liberation and how that so often lends itself to the erasure, to the systemic erasure and violence and silencing of Black women. You know, you can take it contemporarily uh, and, and give some examples of that today or historically as well. So Gil, if you want to start us off there. Yeah, I think, you know, we're having these conversations about race and uh, sexism. Um, you can't have it without talking about intersectionality, right? And how the same oppressive system that created racism is the same oppressive system that creates sexism, right? I've seen a document that has been passed around on social media that has red dots on all the founding fathers. And I recently read an article, even X Kendi actually um, did this article and he talked about Thomas Jefferson's wife uh, writing to him saying that whenever you all are making this declaration of independence to the British, I'm surmising, uh, it, please do not forget the women folk, right? Th Thomas Jefferson's wife is admonishing him I know you're about to do something major. Don't forget women. And he just laughs at his wife, right? Like you, you don't have a place in this. And so with that, we understand that historically in this country, black bodies and individuals that would be labeled as women have not been seen in the same light as men. What this means is that even with, when we place that in the context of intersectionality, what this means is that even though I'm Black, I can be a Black male and still have privilege. And what often, and what is taking place in this movement is that people are dismissing the fact that there is a level of privilege that comes with being a male, regardless of what your skin color is, that I can be Black and still have some form of privilege. And the exact same thing, the exact same thing that I'm asking of white people to relinquish their privilege, to acknowledge me, males fail to do when it comes to their interaction with women. And because of this, this where, you know, you get the violence, unwillingness to let go of that privilege. So when we talk specifically um, not only about the mistreatment of women in all of society, when we talk about just the mistreatment of women in our society and how just in the Black community, we don't even know about some of the women who are at the forefront of these organizations and of the civil rights movement and of some of these big changes that we've seen in a Black Lives Matter movement and in the Black community, we fail to understand that it is that sexism, the idea that because we are men, because we are cisgender men, we have the privilege and the ability to be at the forefront and to be the strong ones and to hold the idea that we are the ones who are going to change things because a woman is not strong enough to do these things or a man who is not a cisgender man is not strong enough to do these things. And to understand that without the understanding that how Dr. Gill was saying, as a black male, we still hold privileges as a male that we don't give the black women Black transgender people, Black non-binary people in our community, if we don't give them that, that, that acknowledgement that we do have these privileges over them, we'll never come to the, full, to the full growth of the Black community as whole. Because when we look at the movement in history, it has been women who have been the backbones of these men 
in these changes, the, the Ella Bakers, the Fannie Lou Hamers, the men who are also not cisgender, the Bayard Rustins, the people who are the actual backbones of this, but we don't learn about and we sort of put to the curb because they're not straight black men. Therefore, to the black community, we're not going to get these things done. And that sort of has been the, the problem, not seeing sexism and racism, not necessarily in the same lens, but just in a lens of understanding that we still do hold privileges as black men and that we do need to come together as one to grow as a black community in this race for equality. I think you both touched on a lot of points there. I think most importantly, the fact that though the black man has often been sort of the most visible figure in black liberatory movements, he wasn't always the one doing the, the, the organizing, the key organizing that led to these drastic and radical changes that, uh, you know, we, we sort of hold on to uh, within society. And again, even in today, as you touched on, Tevin, with the Black Lives Matter movement. So why is it so difficult for Black men to understand the privileges that they have in regards to their maleness? Why can't they hold two things at once, the idea that they are absolutely oppressed and targeted and surveilled and marginalized on the basis of their Blackness? And they also hold great power, privilege, and the discretion to inflict violence in regards to their manhood and the privilege that they get from a system of, of patriarchy and misogyny. Right. I think um, it's a great it's a great question. It made me laugh whenever you were asking it uh, because I, I you know after you after you read my bio, I have you know background in religion, and I find myself on the peripheries of many of the religious circles that I am in, particularly here in Oklahoma in the Midwest, the heart of the Bible Belt, where there is a majority of churches in Oklahoma where women aren't even allowed to stand behind the pulpit and preach, right? So there's this that level of denigration in their ideology to women. Uh, but to what you and Tevin were talking about, I think some of the reason behind that is not only the perpetuation of it within religious circles, you know, a misinterpretation of Paul, the perpetuation of gender roles within the church. Uh, but beyond that, there is a level of ignorance. Rather, it's willful ignorance, cognitive dissonance, or it's unintentional. And it might be innocent. Innocently, people just don't know. But I am currently in, for you know, for example, the pastor of operations uh, here of Metropolitan Baptist Church here in Tulsa. And one of the things that is under my purview is the training of uh, the ministers. And we have, I have them reading right now, Cana Land. And we're in chapter seven and it's talking about the freedom fight. And it talks about the Montgomery bus boycott. And <laughs> many of my uh, ministers were hung up on the fact and did not even know that it was not Martin Luther King, that it wasn't Rosa Parks, that it was a group of women who decided that they were going to petition, that they were going to organize, that they were going to begin to set up the phone trees, the carpools before the Black men even got involved. And whenever the Black men saw that it was going to be a big deal, then they began to push themselves to the forefront. But this was after the women had already done the work. And what my explanation to them is, is that this is a microcosm of history that there has been a Black woman in a place doing the work behind the scenes and some male has come in to say thank you, know, and I even sometimes I don't even say thank you, you know, just push them to the side and just be like, all right, and take credit for it. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, right? That was not him. Like he didn't, that he stole that speech from a woman, right? So like, it's all these little nuanced things that most people don't even know about. Uh, when it comes to a silencing and subjugating Black women. And why, we'll talk a little bit about the, the religious piece of the, or the, the Black church uh, piece and all of that and how that might fit. Obviously, it's a, it's a big question, but how that might fit into the feeling or the obligation, I guess, that Black men feel to be at the front, whether it's the pulpit or the march or the movement or... Right. So um, I've, heard it, I've heard it explained in several different ways. Uh, one is this understanding of power, right? So if I don't have power in another area of my life, the area where I do have power 
is where I'm going to be the dictator or overly in control. And for Black people, Black communities in general, the Black church has been the place where we first had land, the place where we first were able to build buildings independently, the place where we were first able to meet independently. And in those spaces, we literally mirrored the church structure of the European individuals who we detached ourselves from in history. Absalom Jones, Richard Allen, AME Church. And so it's, it, it is a, a direct mirroring of a white church where the white male is the leader of the congregation. And in the black church, it is the black male that is the leader of the congregation. So that is just the historical foundation where there is a black male that's leading. The other side of it is that black people are very black and white <laughs> when it comes to religion. It is either or, there's no both and ideology. It's either the Bible literally said it with no interpretation or there is interpretation. There's no in-between, there's no wrestling. Um, and I think that comes from a little bit of our conservatism. It is was uh, Michael Eric Dyson who said that black people by and large are extremely conservative because of our moral lens towards the literal interpretation of the Bible. And because of this, we would necessarily be Republican. But because the Republican Party has shown itself to be so racist, many Black people don't align themselves with that. But by and large, Black people are extremely conservative and extremely Black and white. And so to have a conversation about the nuances of sexuality, the fluidity of sexuality, it just goes over people's minds. Won't, they won't allow themselves to even think about it because not only have I been trained this way in the religious institution that I put up on a pedestal, but I do not have the intellectual capacity to operate in a, a both end. I, I think that that is extremely interesting, the point on which um, Dr. Gill speaks on where a black male doesn't hold privilege, he becomes the absolute dictator in a place on which he does have privilege. And this is something where the, I've just been thinking about here recently in our quest for equality and just in the recent stuff that's happened. To me, it is the issue that Black people, but more specifically Black males, have that sexism is just as big as a problem and has been around just as long as racism. And to understand that sexism and patriarchy is just as strong as racism, but when you talk to Black people about it, we talk about the 400 years of being a slave and all this, though we forget to talk about the people of color in those times prior to racism, because a lot of people don't know the history of people of color prior to racism. They just know European history, Asian history, and then racism happened, the slave trade history and all that type of stuff. But prior to that, where I feel the Black community has kind of been at fault is understanding that though, yes, patriarchy might not have been to your knowledge with people of color and to the black community, but patriarchy was still an issue with men and women in times before this. And to understand that because it has been so prevalent for so long, we have to understand that that history in it has then carried out into the black community and into racism. So now when we talk about racism, we have to understand that Black men in this racism run are holding that dictatorship because of that Black and white scenario. Yes, we don't hold that privilege when it comes to Black and white, but we do hold that privilege when it comes to man and woman. And we have to understand that that is what it is. We need to quit holding that dictatorship in places where we don't have privilege and understand that this privilege that we hold, we need to use to try to bring the other people that aren't as privileged as us into that same space where we all have the same power, all have the same equality, all have the same amount of power in the community. Right. And, and, and you know, I think <laughs> it can't be overemphasized that today in 2020, there are still conversations around if God can talk to women. Right. So, I mean, the simple acknowledgement that an abstract entity and the abstract entity's ability to talk to women is a, is a, to <laughs> is a topic of discussion. I mean, it lends itself to, to understanding like how far we are from understanding our own faults and inability to see the humanity in someone else, right? Even when the divine entity that we are 
claiming to know and to love over time and through lived experience, through the biblical passages, has shown us that love and creation are above any of the sociological placards or labels that we can put on people. And I just think, you know, to, to Tevin's point, the relinquishing of power starts with the acknowledgement of wrongdoing, right? That I did something wrong, that I've wronged somebody. And right now we live in a space where Black men, or males in particular, like, I mean, they don't think they're doing anything wrong when it comes to their homophobia, the demanding of gender roles, all of these things. And so I think, uh, you know, the work is it, it, to start at acknowledging it and demanding that people see it, um, which is in and of itself tough. And we're so far from that place of that time was talking about of where we're at a place of equality or everyone has equal amounts of power in a given space. Because as you said, Gil, I mean, we, we haven't even admitted that we've done some type of wrong or some type of harm, right? Let alone like interpersonally within our community, mm -hmm. um, let alone or within our campus or within our friend group or what have you, let alone acknowledge the fact that we um, benefit greatly from a larger institutional level, institutionalized level of patriarchy and misogyny that benefits people who are men, cisgender men, by way of performing this violence and how all of it doesn't really, at the end of the day, benefit Black men because who we're harming is Black women and Black queer and trans people. And the reality is that this is only upholding a system of white supremacy and patriarchy and capitalism that are deeply intertwined. And as long as Black men, and this is why I'm so passionate about this topic, as long as Black men continue to perpetuate these harms, these wrongdoings, continue to be willfully ignorant, because I think that's what it is so often, particularly for, for men of a certain age, it's to the point where it's like, you know, you can no longer claim ignorance, right? Google is free. You can do a little research. You can read a couple of things. You can listen to a couple of people to know these things. And as long as people remain ignorant to these things and are unwilling to acknowledge these things, we'll never get to a point where we're, where we're willing to, as you said, Gil, relinquish any level of power or privilege in order to make space for uh, women and queer and trans and non-gender non-conforming people. You know, so I think we're just so far from it, we're not even at a place of admitting it. And as you said at the beginning, Gil, we should be holding ourselves as black men to the same standard that we hold white people, right? Or even to a higher one because of what's at stake for us in the black community. It is li right. literally life and death. It is literally our survival. And as long as we're upholding these systems that harm black women uh, and black non-binary and transgender people, um, we are doing the work of the masters, that Aja Lord quote of the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. And that's what patriarchy is for black men. That's what sexism and misogyny is for Black men within the Black community. And I, I think you you lifted up a good point, too, about, um, you, you know, I think you said it in passing, but the influence that you have in uh, your campus, the influence you have among your friends, those areas where you have influence, even among your family for some people, that's where the change can take place if you don't have a position or a platform of power. Like those things take place in the conversations that you halt from happening at the Thanksgiving table. It's the, it's the conversations that you have in the chat group with your friends who might be saying sexist comments, homophobic, misogynistic comments, who might afford you something about a transgender person getting beat up and have it in a joking manner and you shutting it down like like this is not okay it might be uncomfortable for you it might cause contention but as you pointed out nothing has ever changed as far as the dynamic between whiteness and blackness without uncomfortability and contention and finally a vested interest right in, in it uh for something to change and so what 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 are we doing to curb this level of ignorance and to let somebody know like that's your mama, right? That's your auntie, that's your cousin, that's your sister that's out there being brutalized or thought to be second class or unhuman just because they might happen to have an internal reproductive organ. Like, like it just doesn't make any sense. And, and how dare you, you know, march and say black lives matter whenever you're only talking about cis, cisgendered male lives, uh, mm -hmm. black lives. So it just doesn't make any sense.
a great point that you that that you brought up is it's the point that we can't we can't claim ignorance anymore because like you said all these things are free there are so many tools especially with the way that the world is moving right now not that it's really changed but how more televised and socialized it is now to be able to speak up on things we have to understand that it does come with that that self education that self-understanding and to be able to look within yourself like what Gil was saying and say hey this stuff has to stop not only within my friend groups but having the ammunition and having the understanding within yourself to tell your friends these things and be able to back it up from a place of knowing not a place of ignorance which also goes to my point of just because you don't know something doesn't mean that it didn't happen or that it isn't there back to my point with sexism and racism, back to the point where sexism has been around just as long as racism, but for the Black community, we don't look at anything prior to racism and slavery actually starting and the invasion of Africa by Europeans. Fail to look before that other than everything came from Africa, that's where we're all from. We have to look at patriarchy on a level from religious times. Like we're talking about the Bible and talking about the, the amount of patriarchy that people who claim all these different religions use and all these things have been, have been around well before racism and slavery had started for the African-American community specifically. So just that understanding of it is that education to know that these things are a prevalent issue and that we will not grow as a full community if we don't understand that there are other communities other than cisgender males. Really, even past that, that, that there's more communities than just men and women. And to understand that people who aren't males hold just as amount of power and say and responsibility in the Black community and deserve to be held up just as high as other people in the community as black males and we have to realize that within the black community ourselves which comes with education i think you know so okay so that's that's good you you said you know understanding that it's not even just male and female right so now we go into this conversation around transgender uh i i have a story to tell right so i i you know will stay off the front that i am still growing in my knowledge of uh, transgender people. I'm, I'm still growing, so I, I appreciate uh, that. I actually just purchased a book the other day talking about the history of it. But uh, my story in my becoming uh, happened whenever I was first in seminary in 2009. I'm straight off conservative, Oklahoma, homophobic, used the G word as a, a term to say that somebody was less than or to say that a situation was subpar. I would say that all the time. Um, I went and did a community service uh, for eight days in the ninth ward. And I used the G word in front of one of my classmates. Her name is Lisette Cross. And Lisette was a same gender loving woman. And she pulled me to the side and said, Eric, you know, I just want you to know that those words hurt me. Um, you know, four years into seminary, you know, I still bullheaded, you know, I just brushed it off, didn't think nothing of it. The Sunday we get back from our eight day um, trip to the ninth ward, rebuilding the ninth ward and stuff like that. I have one of my youth come up to me and say, Rev, I've been trying to find in my entire life, 17 years of life, where in the Bible, I am not an abomination. You're my last hope. I can't be an abomination. If my life is not an abomination, why am I living? And it was in that moment that I realized that I was a youth pastor to one of seven cases at the time. He identifies himself as a he, but he had fully functioning female reproductive organs, was born that way. And I didn't know what to do other than to say that you are human. God loves you. And God created you. And when God saw everything that God created, God said that it was very good. And so from there, that has been my awakening, right? And that was what caused me to wake up and to begin the process of deconstructing my homophobia and transphobia and being able to come to a place to say, you know what? See the person before what you presume to be is the problem, right? And I'm, I'm careful in saying that because uh, using the word problem is an issue because it's not a problem, it's a person. So it's just like, see the person 
before what society has deemed to be an issue. And at the end of the day, humanity is what matters. I don't need individuals killing themselves because they believe that somehow their flesh is less than or because of who they are and who they've been created to be is less than. So I just wanted to you know, kind of name that up front and understand that, that everybody hasn't had that direct experience and it takes those direct experiences at times to get people to transition uh, into a place of awakening. Mm-hmm. And th- to realize that that's what's at stake. When we remain ignorant, right? When we're in a place of continued oppression towards identities or communities or people who we deem different or deviant from the norm within whatever X community. And that's what's at stake is the fact that you have kids, children, teenagers who have never seen themselves anywhere within the community, within their religious affiliation, within any groups that they care about. And that if you, Gil, would have responded in a way that did not, at the very least, dignify their humanity, let alone their identities, that person very likely would have killed themselves, right? And that that's what's at stake when people refuse to to learn and to listen and to shut up and to and to just sit back and realize that I don't know about these things, but it's my responsibility to know about these things, right? It's not necessarily my fault that I'm ignorant. It's not necessarily my fault. These are larger, you know, systemic issues and socialization processes at hand that don't teach us about different things or that uh, enforce a gender binary and enforce an idea that heterosexuality is the only right way to, to love or be in a romantic relationship with people, but that it is absolutely our responsibility to do better once we know better. So now it's our responsibility to learn and to be better by everyone in our community. And if not, we are quite literally killing ourselves, killing other Black people, killing queer and trans people. And that's the responsibility that we all need to hold on to and realize that we all have a stake in changing these things or upholding the status quo that continues to inflict harm and violence upon queer and transgender people. And again, I mean, I can't help but to hear the hypocrisy, right? Um, in the outcries for the life of George Floyd, right? And it's, it's, it's a life that is taken. And if my ignorance is going to be a, a part of somebody else's life being taken, what role am I playing in this, right? Do, does somebody need to protest me, right? <laughs> in my ideologies. And then it's just also fascinating. And I think, you know, I touch on these points all the time, just in conversations and in my own thoughts, sort of the ways that what leads us to the streets as a community and as a country, what leads us to uprisings or rebellions, what leads us to massive protests within the streets and the ways that our anger and our just rage in response to the killings of Black people at the hands of the state, so police officers or what have you, why is it always Black men? Right. So why was it George Floyd and not Breonna Taylor from weeks before? Right. Why were we screaming the name of George Floyd in ways that we weren't for Tony McDade? Why are we screaming the name of of George Floyd in in ways that, um, you know, we weren't for Rakia Boyd years ago? Right. And, And we really have to examine the ways that we show up for black men in ways that we don't for Black women, even in our anger in the ways that we look at the targeting of Black bodies. And I think this goes back historically even, when we think about the institution of slavery and when you think of the sort of the first image that pops into your head when you think of the enslaved person or the harm done during the institution of slavery is the Black man, right, being whipped or being beat, right? But rarely do we think about the systemic sexual assault that was being inflicted upon Black women during the institution of slavery, right? And how this was a constant sort of slave making by way of this gendered violence. And we never think about those things. And um, that has surfaced all the way up into today in the ways that, you know, we're, we're willing to go to war for a George Floyd in ways that we're not willing to go to bat and scream the name um, and burn this whole thing down yeah. for a Black woman or a Black trans man or what have you. Which is wild, considering that as a Black male, as a Black person, you have to understand that these things that we're fighting for and these things that we quote-unquote don't think are the social norm are people within our community as well. And that 
again, we will not, we can't move forward until we have the realization that this normality, the social norm that we have was was a white supremacist social construct, was a white man's idea of what is right and what is wrong and what we think should go and what we think should not go. And that goes from religion, like from what Gil was saying, this whole black and white perspective, from what the white man looked at the Bible and said, this is what he said, but we can interpret it how we want because we're the people in power all the way down to now. Um, and to understand that we have to have that same passion, like you were saying, we have to have that same passion, saying these same names with the same loudness and the same maliciousness that we that we have for transgender and women um, of color, just as we do with males. And that that goes back to that lack of education of understanding, again, that this patriarchy is a problem that will put a block in our road of growth as a black community if we don't get our black males and our males of color to understand that we have to bring other people outside of males up or else they're going to feel like y'all said less of a person, like they can't be themselves and not only not be themselves, but damn sure not going to be their, their blackness because they can identify with that before they identify with themselves because people in the black community won't even won't even help them out. So it's just the idea of educating ourselves and becoming better to people who aren't black males as males. And to understand that that education is uncomfortable and is difficult work and is far easier to not. And it's far easier to just uphold the status quo and keep it pushing and continue to be problematic and harmful um, and not to realize the role that we play in this larger system. So I, I don't want, particularly for the Black men listening to this episode, to think that it's just as simple as, you know, listening to someone or reading a little article and then we're good and that the work just stops. But this is a lifelong endeavor of being willing to show up and speak up and make space for Black women and Black queer and trans people while they're still here. Right. So that while we should be out in the streets speaking their name, yelling the names, calling for justice, whatever that means, after they've been murdered by the state, we also have to ensure that we're doing that work while they're still here and uplifting them I and mean, putting them at the forefront and taking a, a step back every now and again and knowing that taking a step back is not a bad thing, but is actually a thing that allows us to really flourish and, and push forward as an entire community. I think, uh, you know, you all articulating the how as going beyond continuing ed. I think, you know, the same uh, praxis that we want for uh, the dismantling of white supremacy holds true uh, when it comes to misogyny and um, sexism, right? Uh, I had the distinct privilege of sitting under Katie Geneva Cannon, the mother of womanist theology, right, um, was my professor for a whole lot of uh, my D-man program, and as well as, you know, like the J-term uh, when I was in seminary. And one of the things she would say all the time is that until the transgendered, poor, Black woman is at the top of the sociological totem pole, there will always be a need for justice work. And that uh, the dismantling or the completely toppling or, or you know, 180 turn of the sociological totem pole is going to be extremely hard work uh, because it's going to cause a restructuring of people's ideologies, their thought processes, the, the societies, the systems that are in place that perpetuate the placement of cisgendered maleness, right, at, at, at the top, both black and white. And so like some of those hows, uh, again, we had talked about, you know, in your direct circle, but even me, right, as a minister, you know, I'm very intentional about whenever I am preaching uh, to make sure that I am uh, naming transgendered people who have been killed as well as Black women who have been killed if I'm going on some run about, you know, police injustice, right? Like, it looks like giving up your place in the revival so that a woman can preach, right? And these are uncomfortable things. These are things that we're asking, why I'm giving up my privilege. I'm giving up money. To go preach at a revival is money, right? Like, you get to give that up so that somebody else could have a platform in a space is uncomfortable but necessary work. So I think that, you know, the hows on how this could get done is, 
it's so many, it's so nuanced and layered that, I mean, we could talk about the house for days. Yeah, no, for sure. Next, before we wrap up here, I want to talk about sort of this idea of benevolent sexism, particularly with J. Cole, Jermaine Cole, like a rapper. And I want to talk about the ways that sexism also shows up in ways that aren't always incredibly violent or, or leading to like a sexual assault and then a death like what happened with Toyin uh, earlier this year, but that that sexism can also show up in ways that tone police women, uh, Black women particularly, and how you had a whole lot of just people in general, Black men, Black women, what have you, who really didn't understand why people were so upset about what J. Cole did and sort of how his uh, attempted silencing of No Name um, and his tone policing of how No Name delivered her message and what she believed in was a problem and aids in sort of the erasure and the silencing of Black women at large. And again, I think it just ties into, Tevin, what you talked about a bit with the need for drastic and, and uh, huge calls for, for public and, and political education around these issues. And also just the need for Black men to not always feel like we have to say something. And for Black men to not always feel like we need to be at the forefront or be yelling in the microphone and the megaphone or in the front of the pulpit, right? And to understand that, that excavation of patriarchy and misogyny that we've internalized for our entire lives, whether for me it's 23 years or for Gil for 30 plus years or what have you, you know, that means giving up some of that power in order to uplift Black women, Black queer and Black trans people, right? And that that's not an easy thing to do because we as a people, particularly in a capitalist society, enjoy the little power that we hold if you know for us as, as black people the because we are very much in this individualistic society so that giving up of power or of privilege um, i think is really where we need to move to instead of sort of this idea of using our privilege what would it take for us to give up some of our privilege and get to get to a point where we're giving up all of our privileges which would mean the full dismantling of these systems that that harm our community so, I mean, again, I'm you know, in the church, so I got to give church examples. So it's similar to a church that says they're full women preachers, uh, but relegate the woman to secretarial roles, right? So she can get up and pray. She might even be able to do a sermon every now and then. But the breadth of the responsibility and the, the power that is given to her is extremely limited. And I would argue um, and shoot, a colleague of mine uh, would argue uh, that that is more damaging than you just outright saying you ain't for women to preach. At least I know where I stand with you. It's almost like, you know, uh, Martin Luther King and his letter in the Birmingham jail. Like, like, I would much rather have somebody who is an outright racist to me than somebody who says they're my friend but won't fight for me. Uh, and I, I think the whole lot of that, too, is us checking ourselves, right, and, and really taking a step back and, and realizing that the, the fullness of accepting somebody isn't just because I said I accept them, right? Like I need to show that I am accepting them and I'm for them and I'm making space for them. In order to make space for somebody, that means I might have to do some work. I might need to pick up some wood, you know, I might need to build a whole entire structure for them or what I might need to do is step back from the space that has already been created for me and tell that person, it's your world, you do your thing, right? And so I, I think that is prevalent. I think it's easy to fall into. And I think I would caution, you know, the listeners and even, you know, the three of us as we have this conversation is that as we continue to grow in our becoming to not get stagnant in the knowledge that we've gained to this point and to think that we know it all and or that we're fully embracing the activist work and or uh, the work of fighting for the full humanity of somebody because it all it's always going to be changing. And if we're not sitting back listening, then we'll never know how it's changing. I'll tap on something just kind of off of that. It's something that me and Miles talked about, but I think Miles hit it on the head um, when we talk about the equality and the idea that we need to, as an oppressor, you can't ask the oppressed how they feel and expect what they say to change you. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's not, that's not the oppressed job, one to tell you how they feel, first of all, and to, two walk you through the life of what it is to be oppressed. And the same way that us 
black people and black males specifically talk about that. I'll, I'll more specifically say how, how those who are doing the social justice work and those who sort of um, are in this field view it. I don't need to tell a white person um, how it feels to be black. The same way what J. Cole was saying in that song to tell no name to sit down and walk all these men down and try to explain that shit to them. She, she's not their teacher. And so it, it's the same concept when you go back and forth. It's not a woman's job to sit here and tell you all these things. And that also goes to the idea that as men, we have to take a back seat and do that research and, and, and do that education for ourselves to understand that what I do or everything that I do can potentially harm a woman or harm those that I have that privilege over. So I need to watch what I do and watch how I say things or else the things that I say can harm somebody on a larger scale, especially when we're talking about benevolent people, people who are at that level to inspire uh, the whole country, to have a whole bunch of men talking about, I don't know what's wrong with this. He said we had to say because no name was coming in him. Well, no name didn't necessarily specify his name, but it's not even that. It's that no name was talking about a lot of people in general. And what she said, we can't necessarily say that that was harmful or who is she to say these things when she was just speaking from her experience as a woman and what she was seeing as a woman, only because we're not women and we don't have that lens to look through to understand what it's like to not have the same privilege as J. Cole to go do these things and turn the same amount of people to go do something. And I think that's more what it what it speaks to the idea that No Name might be able to do something and drop that second song in response to what J. Cole said, but it, it will never be able to, not that it will never, but right now it's just not going to be able to touch the same amount of people as what J. Cole said will. And because of that, J. Cole, the issue was J. Cole had to watch what he, should have watched what he said to No Name to not make it seem like he was silencing her. And then not only that, but once, all women to walk men through the process of how to um, how to bring women up in this race for equality. And it, and it wasn't even specific to women. It was just black people in general, the entire, like the social uplift of black people. And No Name's initial point was that all of these rappers who have made their entire career, have made all of these millions of dollars, have made all these uh, albums about black plight acquired as a church mouse. And it was a fact. It was factual that a lot of, and J. Cole just felt some type of way, felt like she was talking about him. But you could have ascribed that to a whole lot of rappers and musicians who talk about Black plight in their music, but weren't doing a thing. And No Name was coming from a place of actually sitting down with organizers and learning from them. After a year ago, she said some really problematic things about uh, the role of, of Black capitalists and capitalism and things of that nature. And some organizers had to sit her down and be like, capitalism ain't it, right? Um, and she learned, and now she's to a place where she's really talking about a revolution, a Black a black radical tradition, right? So she sat down and listened and, and now is in a place to amplify the voices of the organizers and the people actually on the ground. Something that J. Cole refused to do when his first statement after all of these protests happening across the world was, yeah, you're right, no name, but you're saying a little too harsh for me. Could you sit me down and, and walk me through what you're trying to say in a really nice, in a really nice way that doesn't hurt my feelings? And that's just like, nah, bro. Like, not at all. Like, that's like the opposite thing that you should be pushing for or saying or, or thinking is cool. And that just, even though even J. Cole's song really wasn't all that bad, right? But it, and it was, but it wasn't like on the, on the spectrum of harms right? It wasn't all the way there, right? But it, it left the door open for a whole lot of Black men to be like, yeah, all these Black women are being too harsh. They are doing too much. They're saying too much, being too loud, this, that, and the other, and how this continues to just reciprocate all of this harm and, and these stereotypes about what Black women's roles should be in the movement or just in the community in general. And that's just how patriarchy shows up. And, you know, I think it it's it funny and hypocritical that his comments were that, you know, that women were doing too much, but it's never too much to have the subjugation of women sexually in videos that, you know, <laughs> get your money. Like it's never too much then mm -hmm. uh, whenever, you know, they shaking. 
and twerking. It's never too much then, uh, but it, it it's too much when they open their mouth, right? So like, and use their brain and not their body, right? But that's the same uh, critique that we're levying against whiteness um, that can be, you know, placed with patriarchy as well. So Gil, obviously uh, the name of the podcast is Dream Radical Podcast. And the question that we always end asking our guests is what is a radical dream? Um, what is a radical dream for society, for the church, for the black community? Um, and and we like to think that, you know, you have this radical dream that is your goal, that is the hope for society, for the world, for your community, for your state, what have you. And then you fight like hell to go and get it. So for you, what is your radical dream? <laughs> I'm be honest with y'all. Like uh, at this point in my life, in my activism, this is why I told you all all the time while we was in the weight room that you do the work while you're young, um, because as you get older, life begins to hit on you more. And I would be honest with you, I'm like in a Derek Bell racial realism place right now, uh, where I understand that to excavate or to extract racism from America would be to do evasive heart surgery and America would ultimately have to die, right? In order for it to be a utopic and equitable um, society. But I will say that uh, my radical dream is centered around my three and a half year old son uh, at this point. So while I hold on to this ideology of Derrick Bell and racial realism that I cannot help but uh, begin to grow a little bit more um, hope when I watch uh, my son and think about the prospects of what the world could be uh, for him whenever he's my age, a world that sees not only him in all of his humanity uh, as blackness, but who his sister or brother might be in all of their humanities and or his neighbor, however his neighbor identifies uh, themselves as in their full humanity. I guess that's what I fight for, and I fight for it because of him. And, you know, I'll be 100 with you. If it was not for my three-year-old son, I would just be relegated to the place that America is just stuck in racism. When you start pulling back these layers and sexism, it's just, it's just who we are as a people. Um, and it's a very heavy lift, and I'm tired. Come on, toppling of America <laughs> as we know it. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, thank you, Gil, uh, for coming on today. Thank you, Tevin, for joining me. Appreciated the conversation. Think it's always a necessary and timely conversation to be had uh, amongst ourselves and amongst the community to, to really begin getting to that place of freedom. That's what we're fighting for is that liberation. So appreciate y'all. Appreciate you, man. Love y'all. Thank Love you for having me. Love you too, Dr. Gil. Thank you for listening to Dream Radically Podcast presented by Foundation for Liberating Minds. Like and subscribe to this series wherever you get your podcasts. Check out the work of FLM at Foundation for Liberating Minds on all social media platforms or on our website at foundationforliberatingminds.org. Special thanks to The Third Space in Norman, Oklahoma for providing the beautiful space to record this podcast. Be well and may tomorrow bring us closer to our radical dreams.